Uh, as a church, as Willow Park, we are looking at the Ten Commandments, and uh, I think they reflect God's heart, God's desire to set apart, in the Old Testament we would say to set apart a nation, uh, today we would say to set apart a people, a church, that would honor and glorify God. That when people would see the church, that when they maybe pop into the church, they would see evidence of the power and the presence of God himself. I think it's interesting, I'm not sure why, but most of the commandments are expressed in negative kind of language. Thou shalt not, do not, thou shalt not. Um, I'm not going to question that because that's the word of God, but I believe the purpose of the Ten Commandments, there's a powerful and positive message behind them, that the Ten Commandments and what they have to say about our relationship to God and about our relationship to one another is 100% for our benefit. That the Ten Commandments are a positive statement about who we are as God's people. Uh, we're bouncing around a little bit. Um, this morning we're looking at the commandment that says you shall not murder. In some translations it would say you shall not kill. I think every translation that has the word King James in it uses the words you shall not kill. Virtually every other translation has opted for you shall not commit murder. Uh, I think that's a, an important distinction. But as my daughter said to me last night, she said, Dad, why would you need to have a message on do not commit murder? I think her comment is that it's, it's a given, Dad. Most of us would say we 100% understand that. We get it. Move on to the next commandment. But we do have a tendency as people at time to, to look for exceptions. We might say, well, is this murder or is it an unfortunate aspect of war? Is this murder or simply someone defending their family or their property? Is this murder or... Is it society's, let's say, somewhat misguided attitude toward life? And so I think this morning, I'm choosing to see this commandment and to speak it in positive language, that if we think about you shall not commit murder, if we think about it in this way, life is a gift from God, so honor life, value life, respect life, protect life. And you could probably add other phrases that would fit. I think this lies at the heart of this command. And I think if we approach conversations about life and death from this starting point, even if we hold different views on different issues, our conversations can be life-affirming. Somebody asked me just as we were coming into the church, so, Doug, is there a difference between killing and murder? 
And I said there absolutely is. I think there's an absolutely a huge difference between those two. It could be argued that killing at times can be justified, whereas murder cannot. Murder is generally fueled by things like anger, hatred, revenge, perhaps ruthless abuse of power, or callous disregard for human life. And if you have been listening to the news, that is all around us. David, it's interesting, in Psalms 10, chapter 8, I mean Psalms 10, verses 8 to 10, said this, they, and he's talking about evil people, they lurk in ambush in the villages, waiting to murder innocent people. I thought about that verse when I listened to the news this morning about what happened to a couple of, I think they called them tribes of people in the Middle East. And this verse just jumped out at me, that entire villages, men, women, children, shot dead. David goes on to say they are always searching for helpless victims, and like lions crouched in hiding, they wait to pounce on the helpless. Like hunters, they capture the helpless and drag them away in nets, and their helpless victims are crushed, and they fall beneath the strength of the wicked. I should have actually included the next verse. It talks from the point of view of those who do these evil things that God somehow has forgotten or that God doesn't actually see them. I think we'd have to admit that evil still resides in the hearts of men. Our enlightened society hasn't cured it. We see and hear of atrocities against the innocent every day. It's a resident evil within our world, within our country, and within our city. Canada's judicial system seeks to honor this command, to uphold justice. We would say it's often a painstaking and at times frustrating process, and we sometimes complain about it. But especially in matters of life and death, It is something that we value as a nation. We would say our society wants to get it right. So did the nation of Israel. And I would say so does God himself. If you read Leviticus 20, and you might want to do that on your own later this week, it's a a tough read. It talks a little bit about Israel's criminal code, And it called for capital punishment as a penalty for a wide number of injustices, of offenses. So even within Israel, they sought to establish a system that would truly honor life. There are six cities of refuge. That's what they're called in the Old Testament established within Israel. And if you looked at Israel on a map, you would see that they're quite strategically placed. They were established as safe havens to which people who had inadvertently killed someone could flee rather than face perhaps what we might call vigilante justice at the hands of family members seeking revenge. And I think it was within Israel and within their system a clear statement of valuing life, of obeying this commandment that says, you shall not murder. 
thinking about this commandment, uh, I could hear the criticism. I think sometimes I've had this criticism in my own mind. If you say, Doug, if God is the giver of life, that if God values life, how do we address what we read in so many places in the Old Testament? It's a book that is, has pages of violence, of killing, of death. Or do we just tell people, you know what, just quickly flip to the new. But I think our perspective and our understanding of the Old Testament is critical. And I think we need to remind ourselves that the Old Testament is a story that it was God's intent from the beginning that man who he created in his image was meant to live in harmony with God, in harmony with the physical world he created, and in harmony with one another. That it was meant to be beautiful, it was meant to be without conflict. Yet you don't have to read too far in the Old Testament to find that things went horribly wrong very quickly. And if he asked, well, what happened, what went wrong, the Bible would say in one word, sin in all its forms, evil in all its forms became part of the human experience. Greed, jealousy, lust, power, arrogance, all those things. And we might say, well, Doug, sin is not a very popular word. But I want to say it's at the core of all the tragedy, the pain, and the violence of the Old Testament. It is not God-caused, it is sin-caused. And human history, I want to say even today, 2014, continues to write a similar story, that our world is not unlike the Old Testament. Evil still lurks in the hearts of men. But within the story of the Old Testament and within our own story, you still find God's desire to set apart a people who would love him, obey him, and show forth his glory within a dysfunctional world. That was God's vision, I believe, for Israel. That is God's vision for us as his church and the culture in which we live. Exodus 6, verse 6, it's a beautiful verse, says, therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. And if you take those four words, great acts of judgment, a lot of the Old Testament is exactly that. I will claim you as my people, and I will be your God. And when I read back and read that, those, that verse again, there are some phrases that jumped out at me because they reflect the heart of God. I will free you. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will claim you as my own people. It reflects the heart of God even within the Old Testament. And it was meant to be a thing of beauty. And if you follow the story of Israel, that when Israel truly followed after God, life went well for them. 
There were even situations where they would be badly outnumbered by whoever was facing them, and God would say, do not worry, the battle is not yours, the battle is mine. But the story of Israel had two common, I'm going to call them just repeated challenges. One is that Israel often became enticed and lured by the gods of the nations that surrounded them. And their society society often is described in the Old Testament as everybody started doing what was right in their own eyes. Our society pretty much is doing exactly the same thing. Our idols may be different Our society, we might say, well, we've put ourselves on the throne. But I think the two are 100% connected. Worshipping other idols and what I'll call moral decay. And if you say, well, how can gods fashioned with human hands, made out of things like wood and metal, how can that lead to moral decay? How does that lead to people doing whatever they want in their own eyes? And as I thought about that, how do these idols actually wield power? A verse came to me from Ephesians 6 verse 12. Many of you will know it by heart. We use it in many different situations. Says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. So the idol is not about the physical idol but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That there is quite literally a spiritual battle in which you and I live. And I'm going to say that when I think about the Old Testament, the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm will seek out and take up residence in the idols that you have created, and inevitably you will bow down to them, and they will control you. There was, um, and I forget exactly where I got this, uh, someplace in the magic of the interweb, but it said this, the Phoenicians were a loosely gathered group of people who inhabited Canaan, We would call this modern-day Lebanon, Syria, and Israel, so pretty much Middle East, between 1550 B.C. and 300 B.C. In addition to sexual rituals, Moloch, the idol Moloch worship, included child sacrifice or passing children through the fire. Each image had a hole in the abdomen and possibly outstretched forearms that made a kind of a ramp into the hole. A fire was lit in or around the statue and babies were placed in the statue's arms or in the hole. And when a couple sacrificed their firstborn, they believed that Moloch would ensure financial prosperity for the family and for future children. And as I read that, I thought, how do people get to a place where they would sacrifice their own children? And I want to say the idol had power 
because it became inhabited by evil itself. That evil resided in the idol, and the story of the Old Testament is God saying, I have a different vision for you as my people. And in the culture that we live, God would say, I have a different vision for you. God clearly stated in the Old Testament what practices were not to be found within Israel. And the penalty, as I said before, was often capital punishment. Everything from child sacrifice, and he made specific reference in Leviticus to Moloch worship. Everything from child sacrifice to homosexuality, from bestiality to adultery, from incest to cursing your own parents. And I want to say I do not believe those practices were common within the nation of Israel, but they were commonplace within the nations that surrounded them. Leviticus 20, verse 23 and 26 says this, Do not live according to the customs of the people I am driving out before you. It is because they do these shameful things, those things I just mentioned, that I detest them. You must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. God called Israel to a different standard. God calls you and me to a different standard. We sometimes call it a higher calling. And you may say, well, Doug, the penalty seemed awfully harsh. And it was, but I want to say this, that the God who gives life also has the authority to take life. It is his prerogative. We, God, sorry, we defer to God. God does not defer to us. And at times within the Old Testament, God dealt with people, even his own people, harshly. At times they paid with their lives, but we must, I think, read the Old Testament through a filter of man's sinfulness and God's justice and God's holiness. As much as God is a God of mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, God is also a God of justice and a holy God. And if we view the Old Testament God as, while he was harsh or a punitive God in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament he's a little softer on sin, we miss the fact that God's character, God's nature is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hated sin in the Old Testament. He hated it in the New. He hates it today. What makes the New Testament different and why we focus on it as we should is that God's mercy, God's grace in Christ triumphed over the justice that we deserve. The wages of sin, it says, is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the essence of the gospel. It's what we're called to proclaim. Did God mete out judgment in the Old Testament? He absolutely did. But you know, if you read the Old Testament, you'll also find that God also chose to extend mercy and grace to people and to the nation of Israel. 
But God's desire in the Old Testament was that goodness, justice, righteousness would reign. I know at times when I've read parts of the Old Testament, and there are probably parts that I've never read. I should never admit that, but it's probably true. I remember sometimes being almost overwhelmed by the number of wars. Seemed to be full of battles. I believe that even in the military battles we read about, what we are reading about is God's justice and God's holiness and God's righteousness. But in all of those things, I want to say that God did not violate his own commandment when it said, you shall not murder. I think we need, as uh, children of God, as people who believe that the Bible, the entire Bible is the word of God, we need to be able to speak to the Old Testament and not just kind of say, well, that's the Old Testament. It's the same God. What about war? What's our response to military action that inevitably we know claims innocent lives? We like to call it collateral damage. As a nation, we would say our country is pretty reluctant to engage in war. Part of that reluctance is that we have developed a reputation around the world as peacemakers, as rebuilders. And there is even, I would say, a Christ-like quality about that desire. And there are those that would say our country's reputation has been tarnished over the last decade or two. But I think that in an ever-shrinking world community, as a country, we are being called to examine our response in the face of incredible evil. Men who embrace fear, rape, murder as strategies of war. Men who have assumed power through fear and intimidation. And as a country, as a world, do we sit idle or do we act? Do we get involved or do we opt for diplomacy? I ask these questions because I think we need to pray as a church and as a country for those in power, that God would give clarity and wisdom in those decisions, that God's justice would truly prevail. It is a role that God has given our earthly governments. We need to pray for them. Our Mennonite brethren statement of faith, I checked it out this week, would suggest that we leave the arena of direct combat, direct military action, and that we would reserve our response as being purely humanitarian, helping people on whatever side. But there are many others within the Mennonite tradition and within other Uh, denominations who would also disagree. There are those that would say when the battle is against evil itself, 
I would enlist. Some would enlist because they would say, you know what, I'm motivated by a desire to protect and save innocent lives. To honor life, to value life, to respect and protect life. I don't think it means that there's a single easy Christian response to all these issues. And I think within the family of God, there needs to be room for a discussion, and I think there needs to be room for differences of opinion within the church. Our country's response to other life and death scenarios, we might say, is a bit more troubling. Perhaps not quite as honorable. Euthanasia and abortion are hot-button issues in, in our country, in uh, North America, and perhaps many other places. Uh, both sides in these debates kind of invoke their own interpretation of what constitutes life. And the conversation is often sprinkled with very politically charged words such as rights, freedoms, choice. It's a conversation that often is sprinkled with judgmental words like killing or murder. And at times the debate is reduced, I would say, to a war of words. One side often speaks from a God perspective. The other side may see that as inconsequential, that religion and God just muddies the waters. Honor life. Value life, respect life, protect life. What does it look like in these situations? Is abortion murder? Are all abortions violations of this commandment? What about situations of rape, of incest? What if the life of the mother is truly in danger? While these scenarios are real, the truth is that probably close to 99% of abortions do not fall into those categories. That most abortions represent the end of a life unable to speak for itself. I sat down with Teresa White a couple of weeks ago and talked to her a little bit about the work of the Okanagan Valley Pregnancy Care Center. And as we talked, I couldn't help but notice hundreds of names written along the tops of the walls of the room in which we were sitting, each one representing a decision for life, each one representing a gift of life. And I took some notes, but you know what? I thought it would be way better if we heard for a few minutes from Teresa herself to talk about what they do, how they frame their role, how they speak into some of the most difficult of situations. And Teresa, I'm going to invite you to come up. While she's coming up, I'm going to play um, a testimony of, of a mother. Um, it's just such a, I've only heard a little bit of it, but from what Teresa says, it's such a statement for life.
when I found I'm pregnant, I was very nervous.、Uh, I didn't know what to do. And my、uh, ex husband's mother just brought me here. I was very nervous because I can feel her thoughts that, okay, maybe I have to get abortion, or、um, I was very nervous. I, I decided. To keep my baby because after I visited to a pregnancy care center, just I made a bond and I just loved my baby and I just wanted to、um, be a mother. I just can't imagine、uh, my life now without my son. About six months later, I left my husband. Um, I was hard, having a very hard time.、Uh, but I just became stronger because of my son, that he has nobody. He only has me, so I have to be very strong. So I was a single mom for two years. And、um, about five years ago,、uh, when I went to park, Uh, with my son, and、um, I met a man with a boy, same age of, as my son. So they actually made it together, and now I, I'm married and I have a, another a child. I have a stepson and I have a daughter, so I'm mother of three. So I just can't imagine with, without. My son, my life now.、Um, I will say to the lady that have、um, fear and、uh, nervous stress that you can just have a little step to you know, meet somebody and talk about your stress. It will make a big difference. The baby is never a mistake. I th- I really think it's no mistake at all.、Um, the baby m a k e you stronger. Thank you, Pastor Weeb, and thank you all for allowing me to come and say a few words and explain what we do at the Pregnancy Care Center. Um, Kanoko is one of about 800 women who have found the Pregnancy Care Center at a very, very difficult and challenging time in their life. And we have been able to speak truth. And these, she is one of the moms who received truth, and truth broke through the lie and the fear that she carried.、Um, I remember very much, she was one of our earliest clients. And I was very frightened because her, mother, her mother-in-law had made the appointment, and the mother-in-law had said to me on the phone, over, their dead, over my dead body, are they going to have this baby? And I was, we were all praying that we would be able to communicate truth and that it would be received. So, 800 times we have been able. 
to crack the lie of the enemy that women are not brave enough, they're not strong enough, that a pregnancy that is, well, that is not well-timed or well-planned is not welcome. The baby is still welcome, life is still precious, and we are able to um, serve the Lord in a, in a Christian ministry that honors the Father who, and all these lives that are made in his image. I just about lost it when all your little children came down here and we're heading out for Sunday school because these are the ages of the children that are not here, that uh, one in every four children in our country does not make it safely through to, to a birthday because of the lie of the enemy that has taken such a grip on our culture. And um, by our silence, we can... We can um, be very accepting of the lie. The Pregnancy Care Center was formed by people who, uh, like me, have been hurt um, and broken in this area. Um, our 17-year-old daughter, um, in her last year of high school, uh, experienced an unplanned, unexpected pregnancy. She was a young Christian girl. It was very difficult. She had a choice. She could have in our country, since we have no law on abortion, she could have easily gone without even without us knowing. Um, a young girl can't get a tattoo, can't get her ears pierced, but she can be taken to a to the hospital and have an abortion at 13, 14, um, all the way through. Um, there is no law in this country, so it's evil. It's a lie, and the enemy is destroying our, the fabric of our nation with this big lie. This is the big lie of our generation. It's the Goliath. So the Pregnancy Care Center, we do what we can. We are so thankful that you support us through one, in wonderful, kind ways, like our baby bottle campaign. You guys have been amazing. Um, that campaign is, um, carries us, and our other major fundraiser is coming up next Friday at Trinity. It's our banquet. Some of you may have come in the past. You would hear a, a, about 10 more stories like Kinoko's, and there will be some of our clients there in person. But we, um, we get a chance to show what God is doing and what truth accomplishes. So here's a truth that we will tell a young girl that will come in. Your baby is as valuable as Kate and William's. Your baby is your firstborn, precious in the eyes of the Lord. You will never be sorry. If We will be here for you. We will support you all the way through. We want to show you that the community together cares about life. God himself will take care of you. And again and again, our clients are finding Jesus having their babies, and they have never, ever been sorry. The only ones that we, that are, have, carry regrets are those who believe the lie or the threats or the manipulation. And so we're there to counter that. And we're just so thankful for all of you who support us in prayer. Um, it's a Goliath, and we're the David. We're just nobody's serving the Lord. So I just want to thank you. And I'm 
impressed that your pastor has the courage to give such a message. Um, it's countercultural, but we're misfits. Jesus was too. We, we are very thankful to be misfits in such a culture. So um, if anyone is interested in um, finding out more about what we do, we rely on volunteers uh, that we train, um, and we also are having that banquet. So if, if you think you might like to attend, then you can talk to me over soup. Thank you. Bless you. Uh, the Okanagan Valley Pregnancy Care Center has only three, what you might call, paid staff, which I found quite astounding. But literally hundreds of volunteers that the staff has trained over the last eight years. And I asked about, well, what happens in the rest of our valley? And she said, well, there is a similar care center in Kamloops. There's one in Vernon and one in Penticton that operates on a slightly different model. But I kind of was wondering, well, what, what happened before that? Um, Teresa, thank you for sharing. Um, you know, if I ask what's our response when we hear Teresa and we hear about the work they, they do, and maybe there are two parts of this. Maybe one is political. Um, but there's, I think, action that at times can be far more effective. It is possible for our voice on these issues to be loud, judgmental, and ineffective. There's also an option when our voice can be quiet, non-judgmental, and powerful when accompanied by action. I think as a church, we need to be so careful not to judge women for whom this is a personal or has been a personal dilemma in their life. So many of the young women are faced with subtle or overt pressure from family, friends, or even from the system itself. And they face this decision within the context of fear. Kanoko talked about that fear, shame, uncertainty, loneliness, guilt, and desperation. There are likely those within our churches who have personal stories. There may be those in our churches who still carry a heavy weight, and we need to invite the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God to speak into their life and give them forgiveness and, and release. We can lash out at a medical system who sees this somehow as a way to save money. Same approach they have in a way towards euthanasia. It's another conversation, but it's a way for the system to save money. But we can also step in and do incredible work like we see with Teresa White, her staff, and their volunteers. I just want to say this morning, maybe it's a place that suits your heart, that suits your gifts. And just talking with her and being uh, at the center 
and seeing the names on the wall, I think, you know, some of the small things we can do is say, well, we're going to fill more baby bottles next year. I want to say the presence of God inhabits Okanagan Valley Pregnancy Care Center in an active, observable, and life-affirming way. It's amazing. I'm going to wrap up. You know, we haven't talked about things such as euthanasia, or we haven't talked about what Jesus meant when he's talked about hating our brother, but we need to leave those for maybe a different time. But I want to challenge us as children of God, as people set apart for his glory, that in all these conversations, even when our opinions may not be unanimous, that our language and our heart would come from a place that says we honor life, we value life, we respect life, and we want to protect life. It truly is at the heart of this commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence within your church here in this theater this morning. Thank you, God, that you speak into our lives through the living word of God. The Old Testament is your living word. The New Testament is your living word. And the miracle of the Bible is that Jesus, the son of the living God, came to live among us and to set us free. To take upon himself the guilt, the penalty, the punishment that we deserve. And Father, we say thank you as a church for that this morning. Father, we pray for those who lead our government, who lead our country, who make decisions. Father, we ask that you would speak into those that in a way that we would never even understand. That Father your will would be done even in places on the world where it seems like evil is having its way. And God, in these conversations that we have with one another, may we come from a place that honors you, the giver of life. And Father, where discussions or opinions perhaps are not quite the same, Father, would you also give us grace within the church to accept one another and to love one another. I thank you for the work of Teresa White, her staff and volunteers. God, would your hand be upon them as they speak into the lives of women. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.